0: Welcome to the Revelation Podcast. In today's episode, Dr. Neil Sawatsky explains the city of Babylon, the mark of the beast, and the unforgivable sin. And now here is Dr. Neil Sawatsky. When people talk about Christians should avoid the mark of the beast, that doesn't make any sense. We we don't have to worry about avoiding the mark of the beast because the mark of the beast will be here after the Christians are gone. Now, this is not for the church. this is this is not for us and this in this day and age it's not for this dispensation. And so the mark of the beast will come in the future. It'll come when the amazing event of the rapture has taken place. We still believe that the rapture will happen and it'll happen seven years before the kingdom comes. Uh, by the way, just very recently a gentleman asked me, uh, he said, it looks like we're at the end of the world. Do you think we're right at the end of it? And I said, can't be for another thousand and seven years. He said, are you so sure? I said, oh, yes, yeah. I'm dead sure, dead as sure as a heart attack. I said, I said, the, the world will not end for a thousand and seven years. There could be an awful lot of changes and an awful lot of things will take place, but the world doesn't end till after that. So, uh, so what do we know about that? We only know what the Bible says about it. We don't know anything else about that. Uh, we only know that there's going to be a thousand years of reign of Christ on the earth only because the book of the Revelation tells us so. Apart from that, we wouldn't have any idea about that. There is nothing else in the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation that talks about a thousand-year kingdom. We only find that in the book of the Revelation. That's the only place you find it. And it's the only place where you actually see that this kingdom that the Old Testament talks about, the kingdom that Jesus talked about, the kingdom that is often referred to, is explained in Revelation. So it's not as if that's the first time the kingdom is mentioned, but it's the first time that it's mentioned that it will last for 1,000 years. So I said, yes, I am very, very sure that the world will not end for a very long time. But whether he will appear in the clouds, I can't tell you when that will be, and I think it's soon. That was uh, my answer to this gentleman and uh, my encouragement to you tonight. So the rapture takes place, a lot of things happen, the mark of the beast, and that's probably somewhere around mid-tribulation where the mark of the beast is offered because the Antichrist doesn't really reveal himself until he's well established and he goes into the temple to, uh, un, uh to unveil his identity, to reveal himself, to declare himself as God. And when he has declared himself to be the uh, ruling supreme, uh, he then ultimately proves that by having people give loyalty to him and to him only. So that's what that is. It's a loyalty indicator. It's also the privilege of buying and selling. So how will people survive in the tribulation time if they do not take the mark of the beast? And I've got two answers for you. Number one, an impossible way to survive. Or number two, people have got to be self-sustaining and self-sufficient. And that's why some people actually do move into isolated spots where they can grow enough vegetation and have enough fresh water so that they can sustain themselves should the Antichrist come. You know what? I'd much rather be under the protection of Jesus than I would farming my own self in order that I could sustain myself. But in the tribulation time, it would be important for people to be able to sustain themselves, So, which will not be uh, a lot of people to do so. A lot of people will not be prepared for that. A lot of people will not even think about that till it's too late, and then you can't go establish yourself. In any case, as a believer, you will be gone, so I must hasten on here. As we go and uh, find this passage of scripture, we notice that in the Bible we have reference to the gospel of grace. And uh, throughout the, uh, throughout the gospels, throughout the epistles, we have much reference to the gospel of the grace of God. The grace of God is so rich. We sang about it tonight, marvelous grace of our loving Lord, so that we have the grace of God. So it's the good news of the grace of God. It's the good news that our God offers grace to every uh, to every sinner. So we have the gospel of grace. We have the gospel of the kingdom, and Jesus talked about the gospel of the kingdom, and that is re- that is referred to in the scriptures on frequent occasions as well. But then there's a very interesting one, and that we find in chapter 14 of Revelation, and that is the everlasting gospel. So. Essentially, these uh, these Gospels are the same thing. You cannot have a different Gospel. You You can only have the true Gospel. What we have in these three declarations of the Gospel is a description of one kind to another, but never changing the essence, never changing the actual meaning of it. So the gospel itself is the good news that God has offered to people a future in him. The good news that God has given life eternal and that God has offered hope for the sinner. That's the good news. And that good news is proclaimed. It was proclaimed by Jesus. It was proclaimed by the apostles. Uh, it has been proclaimed by the church down through the centuries as inadequately as the church does it but it has been proclaimed and people have been saved as a result of the church proclaiming the gospel of Christ. That is a combination of God's people. It is gifted people who stand and declare the gospel. It is people who go from door to door, from field to field, from place to place, and tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's being proclaimed and thank God for that. But in Revelation chapter 14, we have this everlasting gospel concept and uh, we're going to be looking at that somewhat tonight. But the first thing that I want you to think with me is, is in the first five verses, we have this unique group of people uh, that are gospel proclaimers. They are proclaiming the gospel of uh, of hope, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of, of what is going to happen. So this unique group of people are the 144,000 uh, Jewish men who were selected out of the 12 tribes of Israel and 12,000 from every tribe and they were sealed by God in order that they might be protected through all of the tribulation challenges and through everything the Antichrist would throw at them. So these people will be unique. No one like them ever lived in the world. And no one will ever have the specific and special blessings that these 144,000 Jewish men will have. And so in verses 1 through 5, we see them. I want you to look at these verses with me. John wrote, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. That must be a very unique sight. To see a band of people to this size of over a hundred thousand, and they all have Jehovah or Yahweh written on their forehead, stamped by God so that the Antichrist has no way of touching these men. So an amazing. Uh, and, and for those people who think that's just a fairy tale, let them think that. And for those people who think it's just symbolic, and I just want to ask symbolic of what? Like, like what could it possibly symbolize? and i say to you it is male figures because they're called men they're from israel they're israelites there's 144,000 of them and they all have a stamp on their forehead it's as if you were sitting here with a stamp on your forehead they're real people genuine people and uh, and they are they are marked by by their symbol on their forehead He said, and I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. That's the next thing we have to get in here is harps. And they sung as it were a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. The first thing you notice about these 144,000 is that they have the seal of God upon them. Now, let me just digress a little bit. It's not really a digression, but it is more of an insight as to what is happening here. These people have a literal physical seal with the name of God, Yahweh Jehovah. It's probably Yahweh stamped on their forehead. Uh, but you and I have the seal of God upon us, which, which gives us equal ground for protection and for preservation and, and for all that God has in store for His children equal to that of the 144,000. I want you to see these verses because for me just to say that is for a man to say something that is phenomenal, but I want you to see it in the scripture. We see it in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. You might want to mark it in your Bibles. Put a circle around it or underscore it or do whatever you do in your Bible. Bibles are meant to be used. They're meant to be read and they're meant to be marked. That's what they're meant to be done with. So I just want you to look at verse number 13 of Ephesians, chapter 1. And uh, we read these words from the Apostle Paul. And whom you also trusted... After that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So obviously he is referring to people who have said yes to the Lord Jesus. They have been born again. They've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. They are, they are saved people. And he said in the latter part of the verse, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Verse 14 tells us, I'm sorry, verse 14 tells us that he is the guarantee, he is the earnest. So that the seal of God placed upon us following our salvation is the down payment for what is to come. When earnest money is offered, it's a deposit. Now, when we do earthly and human trade, usually deposits can be returned. But there isn't anything in scripture that would indicate that this deposit would ever be returned because he has placed his promise of his spirit, the seal that would be upon us, and it's the Holy Spirit of promise. And here's where we read in chapter 4, verse 30 in the book of Ephesians when he said, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed until when? All right, that's that's very clear, is it not? So for anybody who says, well, that's just a deposit, it can be withdrawn, and so on, that's not exactly what the Bible teaches. It might be something that people might imagine, but it's not what the Bible teaches. And it's important always to go by what the Word of God says, not by what we think, but always by what does it say. And so when he talks about this seal in chapter 1, he's talking about how God has sealed us. When he talks about this seal in chapter 4, he's referring to the same idea. He's referring to the seal that we have received but it is unto the day of redemption, which means that God will finish what he has started in us. I think that's beautiful. That's so full of hope. That's so optimistic. That is, that is a victorious statement. Uh, so we see that they are sealed by God. We notice that they have a unique song. Uh, they can sing a song which no one can learn, but they only What kind of a song do you expect that might be? I think it's a song that would exalt the name of the Lord Jesus Christ like no other songwriter has ever been able to do. Uh, They probably sing a melody that that people would not be able to imitate. I would expect that some of these things might be true. I always give my wife a hard time when she chooses Ron Hamilton music. Not this, these Hamiltons, by the way. It's, it's the Ron Hamilton. <laughs> these are also musical people, by the way. But but the Ron Hamilton. I always say that that he's got the most difficult tenor lines that were ever invented. And I said, I don't know why he ever did that. I said, I think he did that just to give us a hard time, who are not the best singers in the world. So, but I don't know too much about the song because we're not told too much about the song. I think the song has a lot of real biblical content in it. But I think what it is, is that no one will be able to sing experientially. That's the idea from the Greek terms. No one will be able to sing. Today, when we sing the songs that we sang tonight, Marvelous Grace of Our Loving Lord, we can identify with that, okay? Because the grace of God has come to us. Uh, All of the songs that we sing that human writers have put together, we can identify with and we can say, yes, that's happened to me or something. I'm hopeful and so on. So we can experimentally identify with the songwriters. But I think that what these people are doing is they're singing something and writing something that is so unique that no one in the whole existence of planet Earth will ever have the same experience as these men, and they will sing about that. We couldn't imitate that song because we will not experience what they experience. We cannot imitate it because we don't have that stamp of God that they do not, that literal, physical, and the, uh, the, uh, the job description that they have. So it's unique to them. And they sing this song that no man could learn but they themselves. We also notice in chapter 14 that these men have a purity level that is superior to the average person. In verses four through five, we notice something about their purity. These are they which were not defiled for women. They're virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. The first thing that I want you to notice is that they were ecclesiastically separate. To, to say that all churches should join together is to say something that the Bible doesn't say. The Bible talks about unity in Christ, and the Bible talks about unity of believers. But it doesn't say that all churches should be together. For instance, when you have the mystery Babylon that is related to a church, I don't think God would want us to be together with that. You have other, excuse me, um, ecumenical structures that do not have a belief in the Bible. They do not uh, subscribe to the Bible. It's not just the version issues with them. It's the actual belief that God has not inspired anything at all and that everything is just man-made. You want to be in a church like that? You want to identify with a church like that? And then you have churches with various doctrines that are not supported by the scriptures. So ecclesiastically, these men were separate from that which was the status quo. Remember in chapter 13, you have the major world church that comes. This will be a church body that will be under the influence of the false prophet, and he will be leading that. these men say, Huh, thanks, but no thanks, I don't go to that church um it, and i know that i know that that's sometimes some people have little idiosyncrasies about going to church or not but in this case these people have clearly decided that's the antichrist church why would we go to the antichrist church i could name you and i'm not going to do that tonight but i can name you a whole lot of churches that i believe qualify for that particular designation and i would not go there i would not go there for anything at all under any under any circumstances These people work ecclesiastically separated. They were able to discern truth from error. They understood what that was. But I want you to notice that they were morally separate because we see in verse number 5 that in their mouth was found no guile. We also see in verse number 4 that they were not defiled with women. One of the big problems in the churches of today is that there's so much what I just simply call hanky panky that goes on between men and women, between, uh, between leadership in the church and, uh, people in the church. It just, it just goes all over the place. It's just horrible. Uh, and so it's, it's, but these people are not like that. You see, these people will be given to the service of God. They'll not be given to, to honor the flesh. They'll not be given in order that they can satisfy what their lower nature might dictate. They're there only to honor God, and so they don't give themselves into the fornication and adultery which is so often the case. I don't know if you heard about recently, and, and this goes to the Catholic denomination recently, where a whole lot of priests were defrocked just simply because of the, uh, the 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 abuses that they made towards children and younger folks in their uh, and there are years and years of ministry. And finally, they were exposed. Somehow this Me Too movement is serving a good purpose in some ways. But but churches, honestly, folks, churches should never have that horrible testimony that these people are playing around with each other. Churches should just not have that. That should not be named amongst us. And it isn't here, thank God, for that. But these people were morally... They were morally above the crowd, and they stood above them. Uh, they would not give them in; they were not given in to the moral spirit of the time that will be there. The moral spirit of the time in the tribulation, if you can imagine, will be worse than it is now. Why will it be worse? It'll be worse because the Holy Spirit will be withdrawn. It'll be worse because the church is gone. And so you're left with a world that is churchless. You're left with a world that doesn't have the power of the Holy Spirit to convict, to convince, and to pass judgment. So you don't have that. So therefore, it's a free-for-all. And people say, I'm at liberty to do so. And they do. And these 144,000 say, no, our God has raised us above that. So we are living on a higher moral plane. That's what's happening to these 144,000. We're also told that they're the firstfruits. What does it mean that they are the firstfruits? As firstfruits, they were the very first people in the tribulation to be saved. Remember, when the tribulation begins, there is not one saved person in the whole wide world. There's no such thing as a partial rapture. This idea that that only good Christians will be raptured and, and Christians who are not so obedient will be left behind. There's nothing in the Bible that says that. Uh, the, the rapture takes God's people, that's it, period, whether they're good, bad, or otherwise. The rapture takes God's people to face the judgment seat of Christ. The, uh, the world is left without any witness for a brief period of time. We don't know how long, but for a brief period of time, there is no witness of any kind. There's no gospel, nothing is being sung, nothing is being preached that lends itself towards the gospel that we proclaim. But when God chooses his 144,000, all obviously young men, they're virgins, they've never been married, they've never had any relations of any kind, and so they are chosen not only to do the work by the seal of God upon them, but they're chosen in order that they might reflect the marvelous grace of God to transform the heart and life of a man. So they're the first fruits; they are the first ones to be saved, not just sealed. Uh, god wouldn't seal anybody that's not saved it even goes way back to the garden of eden god was not going to allow anybody to have access to the tree of life that would cause them to live forever they were banned from that tree of life no one had access to it and in this case the same thing is true they no one no one but no one outside of christ would ever be sealed No one has received the seal of the promise, Ephesians 1.13, Ephesians 4.30, except those who are believers. They have received the seal of God, and so these are believers. They're called the firstfruits, which simply tells you that these were saved people. So they were gathered in from the people in the tribulation time, and they were set to be servants of the Lord. Well, then I mentioned to you, I think I mentioned in the Sunday school class this morning, perhaps, I mentioned that there were going to be some preaching angels. Uh, This is really fascinating, because um, angels have been used of God for various responsibilities. But up until this time, angels have not preached the gospel. It's interesting to me that Peter said that the angels want to look into the gospel of Jesus Christ. They want to know what it's about. So if you want to know what it's about, you're really not equipped to preach it. So they have not done that, and they don't. do The angels have uh, many varieties of responsibilities and ministries, but preaching the gospel today is not angelic. Preaching the gospel today is the responsibility of people like you and me. God sets it upon the heart of some individuals to commit their lives to preach the gospel, whether it's in the work of missions or whether it's in the work of a local church or whether it's on radio or television, but he he calls people to proclaim the gospel of Christ. And so the gospel is going to be be proclaimed by people like us. Now... There's an interesting statement that Paul makes in the book of Galatians chapter one. He said, But though we or any other or an angel were to preach any other gospel than this gospel, let him be accursed. Let him be an anathema. So the, the, the idea that angels have the ability to preach was mentioned by Paul. Not that they were preaching, but should that happen that they would, then they would need to preach the same gospel that the apostles had preached. So the same gospel must be preached everywhere. But I want you to notice in verse 6 and 7, we read this, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Now, here's the gospel content that these angels will be proclaiming in the time of the tribulation. First of all, fear God. We preached about that this morning, so we have an obligation to fear God. But here the angels are saying in the tribulation period, fear God. Secondly, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. Have you ever heard people say that we should never preach on judgment? Have you ever heard people say that, you know, we should just encourage people to accept grace, but never mention the word judgment? Tell you one thing, these angels that come preaching in the Revelation in the period of the tribulation time, uh, they see the judgment all around them. And the world is being judged, and the world is experiencing the wrath of God upon it. And they're saying the judgment of God has come. Surprise, surprise. Some people are going to realize, actually, that there is a God who does judge. Uh, our sin and the sins of the world are not going to be passed over. They are going to be judged. Now, uh, this, another part that they preach is that they are to worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. So whatever you see in the created world, we are to worship the God who made all of that. So we worship him as creator, we worship him as redeemer, we worship him as the coming king, but the angels declare a very, very clear gospel. Maybe maybe gospel preachers of today can learn something from this. Maybe churches can learn something from this, that first of all, people ought to be led to an actual fear of God experience, not because of the Meanness of the preacher, not because of the meanness of God's people, but because of the truth of the Bible. That we fear God because of that, that we give glory to God because of that, and we exalt His name, and that everything about our work is to bring glory and honor to the Lord, to realize that His judgment has not come at this time, but it is coming, and it is coming sometime, probably very soon, and that people would worship Him in spirit and in truth, for He seeks such to worship Him. So we notice that the gospel is preached universally. We see that in verse number 6 where John said, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth to every nation, to every kindred, to every tongue, and to every people. Remember that the Bible says that the gospel will be preached to all the world and then God is going to come back. Well, some people think that the rapture is not going to happen until the whole gospel has been preached to every nation, every tribe, every country, and everybody in the world. No, that's not true. The rapture can happen at any time. The apostles who knew doctrine better than any of us will ever know said they believed that he was coming in their lifetime. That's how imminent it was to them. So imminency is something that is very, very important in relationship to the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. So the rapture can happen at any time, whether half the world is heard, or a quarter of the world is heard, or none of the world is heard. The rapture can happen at any time where God takes his own children out of here to be with him. But in the kingdom era, the gospel, the everlasting gospel that the angels are proclaiming will be proclaimed to the whole world. They will be capable of going where no missionary could ever go. They'll be able to use language that they don't have to learn. They don't have to study. They don't have to go to any school. They don't even have to read any books. They will just be able to go and preach the gospel to one nation and another nation to another nation in the very language that they speak. You talk about you talk about the ability to communicate God's truth in that day and age. It will be so dynamic so that everybody in the whole wide world will get the opportunity to hear. Not that they will believe, but they will hear. You see, God will not judge man unless he's given man the opportunity. And so the fact is that these angels will be proclaiming. The content of the gospel we mentioned to you in verse 7, it is to fear, to glorify him, to mention his judgment to refer to his judgment and to worship him as creator. I want you to notice in Acts 17:24, where Luke wrote and said, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Uh, he's writing about a God who is actually the creator God, and that God is the God that is to be proclaimed to the world. In verse number eight, it's interesting that these angels are continuing to proclaim, and they're saying that Babylon is fallen. Babylon's fall is announced. And there were another, and there, and there, and there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Now, when we come to this verse, uh, we have a foreshadowing, we have a insight as to what will happen. Coming in Revelation chapters 17 and 18, we have Mystery Babylon. We'll be very careful to exegete Mystery Babylon when we come to that. I think it's very important we understand what Mystery Babylon is. But then we come to chapter 18 and we see Commercial Babylon. Think that there's a difference between Mystery Babylon and Commercial Babylon. And we'll notice in those chapters how Babylon falls. Now, you might want to do some studying and reading on that. There are some people that believe that New York City is Babylon. There are some people that believe that the city of Rome is Babylon. There are some people that believe that Babylon will be rebuilt. So those are those are the three possibilities that, that uh, writers and theologians set forth, and we're going to try to dissect that so that we understand what it is. But the angels in proclaiming this everlasting gospel are telling the people that this city, whatever it is, we're not going to go into that tonight. We just don't have time for it. This city is fallen. So it says it is coming to an end. So world trade and the weird religion that is characterized by it, that's fallen. That great city, that city that made nations to drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. A city that was so secular, or is so secular, will be so secular, that it will need to be destroyed. Why did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? He destroyed it because the wickedness of the city had risen up to God, that's why. Babylon will be destroyed because her wickedness will rise up to God. And God sees the wickedness and he destroys it. You see the contrast between the 144,000 who are pure as opposed to the city that pretends to be the all in all for the world. And so God has the honor over here with these men, but he's dishonored by these. And these face destruction. These are sealed by God to be kept forever. So they announced the fall of Babylon. Now I want you to know that from Nimrod to the tribulation, the world economic system is considered Babylon, no matter what city it is referring to, but we will talk about what city is talked about. Babylon has always stood as a secular city and nation. The angel's message is that secularism, humanism, the Antichrist system is coming to an end. This Antichrist system that we see in Revelation chapters 13 and 14 will not last forever. It has its day, and it comes to an end. And the angels are announcing that. The political, the cultural, the economic, and the religious systems of the world are all going to perish. It's not a good idea to put our hope in them. It's not a good idea to put our stock in them. Then I want you to notice the judgment upon the beast and the worshippers in verses 9 through 11. Now, A long time ago, before we went to the park for the summer ministry where we didn't preach on the book of the Revelation, I mentioned to you that there is some talk today that people who receive the mark of the beast will be able to be saved. And I said to you, I said, what I want you to do is I want you to read or listen or discover what you hear and what you find out about that. And I mentioned that at the park last Sunday night becomes the test. There's always a test. The reason I bring this up to you, and, and, and we should read these verses first, and I'll come back and, and give my comments to you on that. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and... He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship, who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Now, the reason I brought this up, uh, I'm, I'm ever learning. I did not know this before. This is something that I have just learned this summer. My good friend, Jimmy DeYoung, who is a prophecy teacher, he is a journalist, he is a newsman, and he is a radio, television, works off times for the Day of Discovery people in doing all kinds of interesting things together with him. He's very highly technical, very highly skilled recently was interviewed on the John Ankerberg, no, not John Ankerberg, it was a different program, he's interviewed on this different program, and he said that people who receive the mark of the beast can be saved. I almost fell off my chair, honestly. I looked at that and I said, wow. So I googled that, and I heard another preacher get up, And he stood tall and right in the pulpit, he said, absolutely, people who receive the mark of the beast can be saved. His name is John MacArthur. There's no better Bible teacher alive in the world today than John MacArthur, in my opinion, I mean, not that I agree with everything he says, but his skills and ability and his effective ability to communicate the word of truth. So I have two men that I hold a very high estimation as far as scholarly ability to teach and to preach biblical doctrine. Now, do you ever read these little things in the bulletin? Um, uh, usually I put my sermon title in the bulletin and, and then I write just a little something. Do you ever read that? How many of you read that? Okay. I wrote in here, major changes are proposed by popular Bible teachers about the effect of the gospel in the tribulation. We will examine the biblical text to read and understand not what we think God said, but what he actually said. That's, that's what I wrote in my little excerpt here. I do this on purpose so that you'll have a little bit of a teaser there about what are we talking about? What are we going to be doing in the service? I think through my sermons that I want you to reflect on these things. Don't guarantee that they'll always be real cute, but they will be there just to give you a little sense of what is going to happen. I was trying to figure out how in the world, I mean, how in the world do Jimmy DeYoung and John MacArthur, and I don't know who else, so I, I haven't gone to that extent to find out who else says this, but this is enough to have these two prophecy, uh, well, well, Jimmy DeYoung is a prophecy guy, John MacArthur is a pastor and a teacher, uh, what, on what basis do they justify what they said? And here's the conclusion that I found about that. They believe that the only sin that is unforgivable is the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. If that is the only sin for which you cannot find forgiveness, then taking the mark of the beast does not qualify. Now I want you to think with me on that just a little bit my opinion, my understanding, nobody else's, didn't read it anywhere, didn't see it anywhere else. Remember that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is when people would relegate the name of Jesus and the work of Christ to the devil. You are of the devil, the Pharisees and the scribes said. And Jesus said, every sin shall be forgiven except the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That can never be forgiven. That means ultimately... Man has rejected, and he has said, no, the work of Christ is not, it doesn't bring us anything, it doesn't do anything. So they reject the work of Christ ultimately is what that is. So to ultimately reject Christ means that there is no salvation for the person that ultimately rejects Christ. Now, I just want you to think about it. When in the tribulation period, when the number 666 is offered, it's not going to be a little secret. It's not going to be something that you just might get stamped by accident. Well, not you, but the people in the tribulation. All right, so what it will be, and listen carefully to this, at least this is what I think it will be. I may not be 100% right, but I think it's what it's going to be. People will be offered the mark of the beast. Do you want to live? Yes. Do you want to eat? Yes. Do you want to buy and sell? Yes. Do you want to do trade? Yes. Okay, in order to do that, you must give your loyalty to the Antichrist. You'll be named. They'll know who it is. He has revealed himself in the temple. He has declared himself to be God. He has announced that he is superior, same as the devil did, way back in the garden or before the garden, so that he will be real, and people will know that this is not the Christ of God, but this is the antichrist of Satan. And those who say, I want to preserve my life, I want to preserve my family, at any cost, I'm going to take the mark of the beast. So in order for the person to take the mark of the beast, he will knowingly, knowingly receive the mark And by taking the mark of the beast, he is saying no to Jesus Christ. Did you get that? And saying no to Jesus Christ is to say yes to the satanic presence in the tribulation. What is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Is it not to relegate the work of Christ over to Satan? So I don't think that John MacArthur or Jimmy DeYoung have thought this through. And if any of you are listening, I mean, I don't think that that's the only thing they teach and talk about for sure. But if you're listening to that, remember that every, every...